0: Yeah, I don't want to take too much time, but obviously it's a, it's a huge plus to have uh, a brother Reese who has a really, really long resume. He's now the al of Chicago. He is the father of... Uh, it turns out he also learned in our yeshiva for his man. Rabbi Reese just mentioned he may be the only person in the world who learned in Shalvim, Gush, and Panovich. Um, but I have a much closer relationship with Rabbi Reese in that he also used to be a lawyer. I even did a summer at the uh, Free Frank. Okay. Yeah. And it shows you what you could achieve, <laughs> even if you started as a lawyer. And so <laughs> I continue to aspire to Rabbi Reese's model. I'm stuck where I am, but I'm trying to make progress, and it's a huge cluster of Reese here, and without wasting any more time, it's public up. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody Weber. It's, a, it's just a pleasure to be here. So Rabbi Weber mentioned that uh, I was supposed to say something about uh, the way in which I stand when I get an aliyah for Kriya Satara. There was some discussion about that because uh, there's a question about uh, turning one's head. So one is supposed to, if you have the Sefer Torah open, which uh, you're making the Bach on the Sefer Torah, it makes sense it should be open. It's about Kriya. I appreciate it when the Ola leaves the Sefer Torah open so I can, can uh, keep my eyes on where I'm supposed to start and not have to refocus myself after the Sefer Torah is opened again after the Aliyah, but uh, one is not supposed to make it look like the bracha is written in the Sefer Torah, so the Ramah records, I think in and Arachayim, that you're supposed to look away, look to the left side there's a little discussion which side you look to, maybe the left side, in order to make it clear that you're not reading the bracha straight from the Sefer Torah, that the brachas don't appear in the Sefer Torah, only the words of the Torah appear in the Sefer Torah, if you look in the um, in the Berhetev, you won't find this in the Mishnah Brewer, The Berheitev has a commentary on all four halakim of the Shulchan Aruch, and uh, very often people want to use uh, grip notes, cliff notes on the rest of uh, Shulchan Aruch. They look in the Berheitev because he brings down the important things you need to know. Like in Yorei he tells you all the shocks that you need to know. If there's the ties that you need to know, so he brings that down as well. And uh, in the Arachayim, people don't use him so much because we have the Mishnaburah. So we get our clip notes from the Mishnaburah. He tells you everything that, uh, that you need to know. Uh, but uh, sometimes he brings down things that the Mishnaburah doesn't bring. So in this particular context, he quotes a Bach. Now, the Bach is very important in our family because we descend from the Bach. So if the Bach says something, we have to take it uh, seriously. So the Bach says uh, that it's not really proper to turn your head away, because if you turn your head away, that's insulting to the Sefer Torah. say, oh, I don't want to look at this. And, uh, you know, the, I, I got I to look away. There's, some, there's something here that's uh, not uh, really so pretty to look at. So that's not uh, so provocative to the Sefer Torah either. So therefore, he says that uh, you shouldn't uh, turn your head away. I but you still have a problem uh, that it's going to look like uh, you're reading the Bachos uh, from uh, the Sefer Torah. So there's an easy solution. You close your eyes close your eyes so people will see that your eyes are closed, that they'll know that you're not reading the Bokos and the Sefer Torah. So that's the minig in our family. I think Yosef Chaim has probably counted every single time that he's done this, but our I is uh, that uh, whenever we get uh, an aliyah, so we close our we close our eyes, we don't turn our head away. When I was younger, this was not part of any prepared uh, remarks, but if we were on the subject, so when I was younger, so I, the, I was... Uh, very interested in coming close to the Sefer Torah. They say, the Torah is something that's so near and dear to us. It's timing the there's the Samcher Meushar, that you shouldn't want to turn away ever from a Sefer Torah. So they used to have a minna genawa This is before they had little holes in which to put Sefer Torah. It used to be when I was growing up, maybe in some shuls it's still this way, that after they would do hagba, and then the person would sit down, they would find a little kid. Uh, to give the Sefer Torah to. So a kid would hold uh, the Sefer Torah. Somehow they were never afraid of the kid dropping the Sefer Torah. I don't know why, but they would find uh, a kid uh, to hold uh, the Sefer Torah. And I always wanted to be that kid. Before I was Bar Mitzvah, I couldn't get Aliyah. So what else am I going to do? I couldn't lay and I couldn't get an Aliyah. Uh, they weren't going to ask me to do Haggadah. So, uh, so the illness was the only way of getting close to the Sefer Torah. So I uh, used to do, I devised what I called the Torah trick. I remember from when I was maybe nine, ten years old, I devised a Torah trick, which is that whenever they would uh, sit down after doing Haggba, so I would always kind of uh, meander in the area, so I would be close by. So if they would look around for a kid, I would be the first one that would meet their eyes so that they would invariably call upon me to hold the safer Torah. So that was my Torah trick to be able to hold the safer Torah. So you uh, should have Torah tricks to figure out how to get close to the safer Torah. Why would you want to turn your eyes away from the safer Torah? I don't hold it against anybody who has that minnaq. It's a perfectly legitimate minnaq. It's uh, quoted uh, in the Ramah, supported by the Mishabur. It's certainly a legitimate minnaq, but it's not the minnaq of our family. So uh, I asked my son... Uh, what Masechta, uh, you were learning a he said, the Beisah uh, so he said, great, I'll speak about Yom so Shani Shagoli so he said, but anybody could do that like that, well, everywhere that we, we heard a hundred shirim about, you know Yom Shani Shagoli, they don't want to hear about that so I have a nice mimer if anyone wants to read so, and Yom <laughs> uh, 13 pages, whatever, you know all about Shita Saramam, is it a minute, is it a Takana, seven or eight different napkaminas okay, it's very gishma, but we won't talk about uh, we won't talk about that uh, right now uh, we'll talk, instead uh, I was asked that to speak about exciting um, Besden developments. What are some of the interesting cases that we've had in the Besden, especially maybe this past year, this past uh, Tukufa? It was very challenging. For a long time, we couldn't even go into the office. We told all the people who wanted to do Gitten that we weren't doing Gitten for the first uh, few months. It was very hard for couples who wanted to get divorced. They had to figure out how to do Shalom bias. And uh, uh, hopefully some of them stayed uh, together, uh, but uh, it was a challenging uh, period. A uh, challenging period of time. People ask me, "Can you do a get via Zoom?" So you can't do a get via Zoom because the get has to be delivered specifically into the wife's hands. You can't have a virtual delivery of a get. You can have a virtual other uh, other types of things. A person can um, uh, maybe make verbal declarations, like the husband's appointment of a sofa. Can potentially be via, via video teleconference. Uh, Rabbi Chaim Jachter wrote an article for the Tukhuman Journal maybe 25 years ago or so about uh, can you have a husband's authorization of a software? It says, the cost of love, the cost of love, there has to be a direct communication between the husband and the sofa who's going to write a get in order that he have uh, an appointment of the sofa as his shliach or in order to ensure that the get be written l'shema, two different opinions, uh, the Beishmur quotes in Simon Kufchaf and Eben Ezer, as to whether the sofer is a shliak of the husband, or whether the sofer has to be appointed in such a way uh, that it's as if he's a shliak of the husband, because the get has to be written in the shmah, because of the So, does that mean that the sofer and the witnesses to the get have to be standing directly in front of the husband? So, if a husband would say to three people, I want uh, you to take care of a get, and then they go and they tell a sofer to write the get, another atem to write to, to sign the get, So the Gemara says that's no good because that's like in a verbal appointment. That's not something that could be carried. That's not strong enough uh, to uh, have uh, the effect that it could be carried out through a be. It has to come directly from the husband if it's going to be a verbal appointment. But what if the husband verbally appoints a sofer or an, A- an aid him to sign the get. He verbally appoints both and He doesn't say to three people, You take care of the get, and then they go to the other people. He says, I'm officially appointing Rabbi Lichter, whomever, to be the uh, sofer to write the, the get, and I'm officially uh, appointing the following two men to be aid him to sign the get. It's just that they're not standing in front of him, but he's mentioning their names. He's uh, taking care of it directly. It's just they happen not to be there. That's called the mino shalom So is that good or is that not good? So the Ramban says, that's no good. It has to be immediate. It has to, it has to be a heshtat There has to be some type of a connection. There has to be a, some type of a, uh, an immediacy of uh, the appointment of the husband uh, of the sofer and of the etim. And if they're not in the same room, they're not in the same location, there isn't that same immediacy of connection. It's not the same as and uh, therefore it would not be good. And the Ran and the Ra'ah say they think that would be good. They think uh, that as long as he specifically mentions uh, who he wants, uh, and there are other people who hear this, and those people can tell the sofa and the Edim, you've been appointed by the husband, that would be good enough. For so because it's a machlokas, so we don't rely upon it. But then there is a separate machlokis as to whether, if the husband writes on a piece of paper, I'm appointing the following sofer to write the get, and I'm appointing the following eidem to sign the get. So his writing considered to be good enough. So there's a din in the Gemara and Gittin. The Rav Kahana says that a cheresh, a person who's a deaf mute, doesn't have uh, the das and doesn't have the uh, verbal communication skills to be able to appoint a or and him to write and sign his get. When he was married, he was a pikeach. He didn't have this, this problem, then he became a Khairish. so his wife really is considered to be married on a daraisa level, she has to have a propaganda on a daraisa level, so can he write the appointment of the sofer and the athem is that good enough, so Rav says it's good enough, and then the Gemara says we reject Rav so when we reject Rav does that mean that we're only rejecting the case of a khairish or we're we even rejecting the case of a Pikach? That's a big machlokas, it's a big machlokis. it's, uh, the, it's uh, three different deus. And uh, we showed him that maybe nobody's—it's uh, not considered to be good enough if anybody, even a person who has all of his faculties, who would uh, write a, a get, uh, would write an appointment for a sofa to write the get and for Adam to sign the get. They know that is not considered to be good enough. It has to be a verbal communication. It has to be a direct uh, signal from the husband uh, that uh, he is indicating with his body uh, that he wants the sofa uh, to write the get and so forth. Uh, another sheet is, no, it's only a cheirish that's excluded, but everybody else who has full das, just like they can appoint verbally, they can appoint in writing. And then the third shita is uh, that uh, it's a cheirish is excluded, uh, and a person who has das normally couldn't appoint a an edem, but if they don't have the verbal ability to do it, like the Gemara talks about a case, the Mishnah of Gemara talks about a case of an eshtatek, a person who is temporarily unable to speak, but normally they're able to speak, but, they, but they they, have hearing ability, they're not a chayvish. They're, they're able to hear, they're just nishtatik, right now they're not able to speak, so that a is allowed to appoint a Sopra and aid them to write and sign again, you just ask them questions. Said you, you, you want you want this other the right to get? Yes, yes, yes. You know you, you don't you don't want this other person to write to get? No, no, no. And you ask the person lots of questions to make sure that they're in the right frame of mind. Is this a type of season that you would wear? They're asking somebody right now in Gush in the middle of the summer in Tavshin uh, Peyalev. They ask, is this the type of season where you would wear a heavy coat? And he goes, no, 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 no. You know, is this a season where you would wear a, a t-shirt? If you're not Haredi, you say, yes, yes, yes. You know, so the person you know answers all of the questions uh, appropriately through shaking the head or through nodding the head, as the case may be, uh, and uh, then uh, on that basis, you're allowed to write the get. So some of the Rishodim say, just like an Ishtatek is allowed to appoint uh, a get through uh, the shaking of the head and the nodding of the head through uh, bodily gestures, so they also can write. Uh, on a piece of paper, the appointment of the sopher and the Eidim. But somebody who has the ability to speak, a person who's not only a B'kech, that they have das, but they have the ability to speak, so then there's no need to make any special dispensations for them, so then they would have to uh, actually uh, make the appointment verbally. So the Episkei Tshuva quotes the Maharami brisk, not the same thing as when we say the brisk of Rav, we mean Rav Chayim, we mean Rav Belpo, we mean other people. This is the Maharami brisk from a long time ago. And the Marammi Brisk uh, said that if you do both of these things, uh, then it would be okay. Since there are some we showed him, including the Ramban, who say that if uh, the get is written, uh, if the appointment for the, uh, the get, for the writing and signing of the get is written by the husband, and he's a piqueach, that's considered to be uh, good enough. Uh, and uh, even the, we showed him who reject that. Uh, say, like the Rod, uh, for example, who rejects that, at least in his commentary on the RIP, so Henry Shonim, who reject that, uh, say that it's good enough if you have a mino of if the husband appoints specific sofa and aid them verbally, but just not in their presence, so if you do both, the husband is far away from any beis so the Sofa and adam are not in his vicinity. He's not able to travel to them, so he says in front of two other witnesses. He says, "I'm appointing and Ploni to write the get, the, the following adam to sign the get, and he also writes an official. Uh, he signs an official appointment of the Sofa and adam to write and sign the get, and that written declaration, that written appointment, gets it delivered to the Sofa and the adam so that they see the husbands." A signature right in front of their eyes. If you have that combination, that's a winning combination, and you could write again on that basis. And many they didn't, but the Anish wasn't crazy about it. The Chazonish thought that even when the Ramban agreed that it would be okay for the husband to sign in writing, that he's appointing the Sofa to write again and the Adem to sign again. So the Chazonish thought that's only if he's in the presence of the Sofa and the Adem, and he's writing it in their presence, because otherwise you don't have a Hittstapris, otherwise you don't have a requisite connection. But many of uh, the post the classical post be relied upon this Marami Brisk. If there was a husband somewhere in Siberia, but he didn't have a Bezdin, and he wasn't able to go in front of a Bezdin. They would have him stand in front of two people, and he would uh, verbally declare that he's appointing the or in the athem. and uh, then he would sign a document in which he appointed the self in the athem, and they would write again in that basis, "Mishumaguna, Maguna, Akilu pei We have to be lenient when it comes to enabling a woman to receive a guest so she can get on with the life. They would rely upon that. So there were some later authorities. So the bruderov, the bruderov of was a in broad. He was uh, known as the of Avram, Steinberg, uh, so he um, he had a grandson who was the first Abesdin of the Bezdin of America. And he also went by up because, uh, you know, you've uh, assumed the titles of your forefathers and so forth. So he came from that tradition of the up, so he was also known as the up And he wrote a tshuva at the end of his uh, grandfather, say, for the Sefer, the of Avram. If you go in Hebrew books, if you go on Otsarachachma, you won't find this. You have to have an original of Avram, uh, and only the original version has the chupas that he added in the back. So, if you, one of the chupas that the grandson of the brother of wrote in the back was he said uh, that I have an even better solution that would work according to everybody, maybe even according to uh, the Chazanish's uh, interpretation of the Ramban. Uh, maybe if you have the husband write an appointment of the Sulfur and the atem, and he also um, makes a verbal uh, declaration that he's supporting the Sulfur and the edom, and he also speaks to the self in the athem, not in their presence, because he's far away. But he does it over this new contraption that we have known as a telephone. If he does it over a telephone, so maybe the Tefia uh, Seinu the fact that people will recognize uh, his voice, uh, that uh, that will like, be able to identify, and people will identify his voice, um, so that also will create a direct connection with the self in the athem. So if you throw that in, so then you have a Triple Crown solution, and uh, that should work according to everybody. So that's what the Bezin of America has done uh, over the years, that whenever the Bezin of America has the right to get for somebody who's very far away, there's no cell print aid them in the area. For a long time, uh, period of time, we were doing get-in for uh, the um, community in Uruguay. And uh, also in Chile, uh, they didn't have a sofa in Edim uh, who were available whenever a husband and wife needed to get uh, divorced, so we would have the husband uh, call up uh, from, uh, from Uruguay, and he would appoint the self and the agent over the telephone, he would make a verbal declaration, he would sign the document, so we would have all of the three components, and we would be able to write a get, and then we would appoint an agent, whoever would be the rabbi in Uruguay or Chile, whoever it was, who would deliver the get to, to, uh, to the wife, we would do it that way. So one second, yes, your question? That voices Can now be so that take away from the third the, uh, Yeah, yeah so it, you would have to be able to verify that it was really the voice. They were assuming that it's uh, pretty straightforward. The Gemara has a case, the Mishnah has a case of a person who's in a bore. they're inside of a pit. And they say, Anybody who hears my voice should write a get from my wife. So even though we can't see the person, we're allowed, the Gemara says that we're allowed to rely upon the voice. For a shofar, we wouldn't be able to rely upon it because it's only a call havar. Apparently, a call havar is okay when it comes uh, to uh, an appointment for a get. Uh, even though the person is speaking from a pit, you would be able to, to write the get. So that was uh, a good uh, idea. So Rabbi Jachter wrote, I have an even better, better solution. Uh, that in addition to the two different methods that were endorsed by the Ramah Marami Brisk, Aminoy and Befanov and Aminoy Ayideksiva. Uh, well, and uh, the third uh, component of do a mino yayide telephone we'll do a video teleconference uh, so we have a video teleconference then you'll be able to see the husband directly so he discussed it with Rozal Menechemia Goldbergs off. and Menechemia thought that's amazing that's a great solution because this way you know for sure it's the husband because you're looking straight at the husband you also have people there who can identify the husband together with the video teleconference call <coughs> so the mice of the Batitin didn't end up doing it because did are not so technologically uh, savvy and also the, the amount of of effort and time and the uh, expense that would have taken to set up the video teleconference equipment. You could have just put the husband on a plane and get him to be right in front of the best in any way. So they didn't uh, end up uh, doing uh, the video teleconference, but this became relevant again um, uh, with uh, the pandemic when people weren't allowed to go out. So even though, when it comes to the actual receiver's to get, the delivery of the get from the, the husband to the wife, or from the husband shliach, the husband's agent, into the wife's hands, that you can't simulate over a telephone or over video teleconference. That has to be direct. But with Zoom technology you could have had the appointment uh, from the husband. So I think I read that the Rabbanut uh, allowed for uh, a get to, to uh, be authorized, at least by the husband in this particular fashion. And my own approach was that, look, since the we're not going to be able to deliver the get. And so we're able to be physically in the same place as the husband and the wife. So if we have to wait until then anyway for the delivery of the get, we could wait until then for the appointment uh, by the husband of the get, unless there would have been some sort of situation where we were worried that if we didn't have the husband make the appointment right then and there, we would have lost him forever. So then I suppose we would have been makel uh, to allow this type of, uh, of an appointment. But we didn't need to do that, so we waited. And then when we finally were able to, to uh, get in again, so then there was a question mark, as to uh, whether it would be okay for the women to wear gloves to receive the get. The Rama says that really you shouldn't have a chatzitsa. The get says, v'natan bi yada get has to go into the hands of the wife. So it's supposed to go directly into her hands. The truth is, it's more of a kenyan than anything else. So if it goes into the airspace of her hands, it's good enough. The Gemara talks about the get going into the chatzar of the wife, you know, being good enough. So really, it's a chumrah. It's not a me'akev if she's wearing gloves, but the chatzhidah, the Ramah, says that she shouldn't be wearing any gloves. We always tell a wife before she receives a get, we say make sure to take off any rings. You shouldn't have any chatzitzos between the get and your fingers. So sometimes it's a big deal. Sometimes the ring hasn't come off for many years and then she has to run it under the warm water for a long period of time. You have to yank it off. So even if she was wearing a ring, it would be OK, too. But we generally ask that she take away anything that could potentially be a chatzitsa. So we had one case of a woman who came, and she was masked to the hilt, uh, two masks and a shield. And you know how it is. Some people are very, very machmir. Uh, and uh, she, w- w- as it is, we didn't even use our regular Bezdin facility for the first several months. When we were allowed to be back in circulation, it was shortly after last Shavuos, uh, we, didn't, uh, that we felt that the Bezdin room itself was too cramped. We weren't able to maintain social distancing we wanted everybody to be at least six feet uh, apart. Uh, people were very, very mocked, but I remember at the early stages, they said you have to have the social distancing six feet apart, everybody has to wear a mask, and uh, you have to wash your hands constantly for 20 seconds, and I would have these people uh, send me you know, these urgent emails. I remember at the and saying, you must send out a call Coray to the community because there are people who are only doing it for 18 seconds and for 19 seconds and they're calling, causing deaths and people are going to die because it's not 20 seconds and it was a great time for OCD people, but anyway, so this woman. So uh, she, um, uh, so she showed up. Uh, and, uh, she didn't, um, and uh, she didn't want to take off her gloves. And she asked if it's okay. So we said, look, if you're not social distancing. We're not going to have your husband. You know, throw you the get. You know, from six feet away, it's going to have to. He's going to have to be a couple. You know, right next to you. So if you're not social distancing anyway, you can take off the gloves for two seconds. The doctors say the gloves aren't such a big deal. Uh, they're not so concerned about fomites, whatever that means. So uh, they, uh, so, uh, so I got it to take off the gloves for two seconds, so we didn't have to worry about that, Shaila. But Rabbi Svi, Benyam, um, Tzvi who who's a uh, dayan here in Tel Aviv, see, he wrote a whole tshuva in which he explained that it would be okay if the woman doesn't take off her gloves, the Ramah is only a okay. So that's what we had to deal with uh, in terms of, of gitim. But uh, unfortunately, because some people die young, Because of the corona, as my Rebbe Rav Shlita pointed out, the corona didn't only affect uh, the old people. We don't want the old people to die either. But there were younger people who died in my own community in Chicago. Baruch Hashem, we closed down very early. I got into trouble because I sent out a letter, I think, March 10th of last year, something like that, saying all the shuls in Chicago have to close immediately. People thought I was the world's biggest curse. But then uh, a couple of days uh, later, the rest of uh, the community followed the suit, and uh, they all uh, agreed this was the right thing to do. So Baruch Hashem, we were able to really avoid major casualties uh, in, uh, in Chicago, but unfortunately there were a few deaths and uh the uh, and two I think there were maybe four people i, I don 't know the, uh, the the final camp but uh, but but two of them were were young they were on the younger side and uh, when a person dies young, so you have a situation that used to happen much more in europe fortunately it doesn 't happen so much nowadays that there 's a situation of Khalitsitza you have a situation that you have um, cases where a man dies young without any children and he leaves her aside a brother and therefore the widow is not allowed to remarry unless she does chalitza with a brother-in-law. Uh, technically she could do yibum. She can marry the brother-in-law. The uh, shita of the Ashkenazim is to follow Abashol in the Gemara. Abashol held Mrs. chalitza, kodemus mrs yibum. That it's better to do chalitza than to do yibum because we're worried that if people do yibum they're not going to have the proper kavanos. And therefore, it'll be, it'll be as if there would be some sort of a violation of the erva because the person is not allowed to marry their brother's wife even if uh, the brother is no longer uh, al- around and uh, it would be an iser erva uh, if there isn't uh, the right uh, kavana it's probably uh, a guzma as most of the Rishonim learned that it wouldn't really be an iser erva but it would be approaching like an iser erva so we don't want to allow uh, the uh, evil to be done for uh, a lack uh, for, of a proper kavana. Uh, is, uh, you know, a person might actually like his sister in law. If he likes his sister in law, maybe he wants to marry her because she's pretty or because she's wealthy, and then and not for the sake of the mitzvah, so then that might be problematic. So, therefore, in the Ashkenazi community, we always do chalitza. In the Sparta community here in Eretz Yisrael, there was a takana that was made in the early years of the Medina uh, by the two chief rabbis at the time, by Yitzchak, um, uh, Isaac, Alebi, Herzog, and Baben uh, Siyan They both agreed that from now on, everybody should be on the same page. Ashkenazim have one. Ashkenazim inspired him. everybody should do khalisa, no more yibum. And Rabbi Yosef found out about this, the and he said the whole thing should be patul mabuto, the yotzim ramah. You're not allowed to just do that and follow the shita of the ramah. you got to follow Marana base yosef and the machabab baskins, that for the Sfardim, the, the assumption still is that mitzvahs yibum kodem is the mitzvahs khalisa, the yibum comes first. So he personally would perform yibum, he would preside over yibum ceremonies to see to it that yibum be performed and not uh, chalitza. In the Ashkenazi community, we do chalitza. Most of the time, the people aren't interested in um, yibum and um, marrying each other. So even in the Sephardic community, I assume that chalitza still happens a lot. I don't know. I'm not an expert at what happens in the Sephardic community. But certainly within the Ashkenazi community, we do chalitza. So we had a case, unfortunately, of a fellow who died (laughs) young of COVID. And because he died young of COVID, the, the, uh, the couple had just been married for maybe a year or so. And uh, they they didn't have any children, and uh, as a result, we had to perform a chalitza. For the, um, between the, uh, the Yavama and the brother-in-law. That's the removal of the Torah describes it. You're familiar with how yibum, al Halitza works. Special shoe that goes on the Yavama's foot that the, uh, the Yavama takes off the shoe and they reach certain Sukim and she has to expectorate in his presence. So the, uh, we had to we, we did two Khalitsas this past year. One of them unfortunately was the fellow who died of something else uh, but uh, one of them was a fellow who died of, of COVID. So we had one Shiloh that came up This came up already a few years ago, but once we're on the subject, this came up already a few years ago that uh, sometimes when a man dies young without children it's because he has a machla of some sort, and the machla prevents him from being able to have children, and then sometimes, unfortunately it causes him to be nifter but before uh, the person gets their various treatments in order that there be a possibility that maybe they will be able to have children before they become sterile, um, so they'll take some of the zera. Out of the man, and they'll freeze the zera, they'll cryo back the uh, the zera, so that the zera can then be used to impregnate uh, the wife, so that they can have children. And sometimes that enables the couple to have children. But what uh, happens as a result is that the man dies. And uh, when is it that Ibn machalitz is performed? We have a pasuk in the Torah that says Uvain That uh, only when he doesn't have any children, ayin that's why we look from ainlo ayena lo that you have to do an investigation. Maybe he has a child from another relationship. Maybe he has a child from another marriage. The Marit Skiyos in the back of your bummer says I have another great reason why nowadays. Uh, we should always favor chalitza over yibum because we live in more promiscuous times and therefore even if we think that the man doesn't have any children because he didn't have any children from this wife and he wasn't married to anybody else maybe he had a relationship with a Jewish woman that we don't know about and maybe he has a Jewish child somewhere in the world and therefore it would be a or erva for him to perform yibum. For that reason everybody should do chalitza. It's a very interesting argument. So uh, the ayin love now has new ramifications. We've had the shayla more than once. We've had the Shaila leMaise come up more than once, and that is the man dies, and he doesn't have any children, but he has Zera. There's Zera, there's frozen Zera. The Zera could still be used to impregnate his wife, not just his wife. It could be used to impregnate another Jewish woman, and then he would halakhically be a father. So let's say he halakhically only becomes a father after he dies. So is that enough to exempt the wife from Yibum and Chalitza? And if it exempts the wife from Yibum and Chalitza, let's say she would have performed Yibum. Will it turn out retroactively that she was over? on an Eva for marrying her her, husband's, her late husband's brother, an Yisra because it turns out that there was no justification for the Yubam to take place because there really was a child. So the Noda Behuda had a case, it's in the Tshubas of the Noda Behuda, where a man uh, died, and then the wife gave birth nine and a half months later. So the question was, should we assume that the child came from the original husband so that she would be Petura, she would be exempt from chalitza? It's already nine and a half months. So do we say that the child is ishtuhuye ishtayi, that the child uh, just took a long time to come out? The Shulchan assumes that up to 12 months, that you could sometimes have a pregnancy that could last for up to 12 months. So this wasn't even 12 months. So maybe there was more room to be made So the note of Be'uda brought the possibility that maybe it came from the husband, zera but that it did not uh, fertilize right away because uh, the Gemara says that you have a, a case of platea shikva zera, where a zera from a man can come into the wife's body, and then it could take uh, then three days later it could come out of the body. So up until it, take, it could take three days for the zera to fertilize, so maybe it's just sitting there; it's still potent for a few days. But maybe it was only fertilized after the husband died. So would that exempt the, uh, the wife from Khalitsa if she would have a child that was uh, where the zera was only fertilized afterwards? So the Noa the says he thinks that maybe it wouldn't thinks maybe it wouldn't because we have a principle that we wait to do chalitza until uh, three months because after after, after the husband's death, because it could take three months for the uber to be recognizable. And why don't we wait three months and three days? So he said, really, you should wait three months and three days. He said, obviously, we don't wait three months and three days because if she would only become pregnant, the husband Zara that was fertilized one or two or three days afterwards, so probably that wouldn't exempt her from chalitza or yibum. So therefore, she would still need to do uh, a, um, she would still need to do a chalitza. It wouldn't count anymore. So he said this is a very um, uh, original svarah. He didn't want to rely upon it alone. And he said in this case you don't even need to rely upon it because she, probably she, uh, the zara was fertilized immediately and it just took longer than usual for the child to come out. It took nine and a half months for the child to come out, but not because it was fertilized after the husband's death. So in this case you could be makel anyway. But he threw that svarah out there, you Israeli." When he was heading the Ereskemna Institute right here in Arenci he Saucy, he was asked this Svara, he was asked the Shaila about whether we rely on this Svara hazeh, um that if, uh, let's say, you had some Zera that was cryo and then the wife, the widow, would have a child from that Zera, not that it would be fertilized uh, within three days after death, it would be fertilized three years after death, and the child would be born. So, with that, Patsa from Chalitza. So, he brought the Chuba of the No De and he said that he thinks in this case, for sure, where uh, there was no Bia, uh, between the husband and wife that led to this child being born, the child was only uh, was was only. Brought into existence, so the fertilization only took place uh, years later after the husband died so for sure it wouldn't be attributed to the husband for these purposes, we would attribute to the husband, the Sefer Chalisa Kehokas says, let's say a woman is artificially inseminated with her husband Zerah so then there's, and she has a child, and then the husband dies, does she require Chalisa Yipum in that case, so there's a machlokas between the Beishmo and the Chalas and the ties in the first semen of Ezer. whether a, uh, one can fulfill the Mitzvah through artificial insemination. That was Nisaba Bambati. In the case of Nisaba Bambati, she went into a, a bathtub and the husband Zara was floating around the bathtub and she became pregnant. So, she had, can you perform uh, the, the mitzvah Pruavu in that particular fashion? I think the Beishmol says yes, and the Chokos Makokik says maybe, and the Ta' says no. So, you have three different Shittos So, he says, but in this particular instance, he said everybody should agree. The Sefer says, I don't know if everyone agrees with it, he wrote the book. If you write the book, says, so you get the basket, right. But I don't know if everyone would agree with this bzach. But he writes uh, that he thinks that everybody would agree, kosa shlomo, that everybody would agree in this case um, uh, that uh, there would be no need for chalitza because the, what does the Torah says? It says uvein ain lo Ayna The medrash says uvein ain any kind of child is good enough. Even a mom's there. any kind of child is good enough. Any kind of child is good enough. So, all right, even if maybe it wouldn't fulfill puh but it's a child that came from the husband's ear. It was during his lifetime, so that would be good enough to exempt the wife from Khalid or Yibam. But what if it was after death? It was after that, so then Rav Yisraeli thought that that wouldn't be, uh, he thought that wouldn't be good enough, and that the wife would still need uh, Chalitza, she would still need um, Yivum afterwards, even if the child uh, would be born uh, many years later. Um, If the the child would be born after the husband's life, uh, many years later, he he thinks that's too little too late. So in the back of the Sefer Chalitza Kilkasa, there's a tshuva from from Mnassan Gishtetna, who's the mechaber of, he passed away. It's the mechabe of lahoros Nassan, a very uh, fine uh, set of tshuvas. Uh, so of Tshuvas called lahoros Nassan. So Nassan geshetner uh, disagreed. He thought, and in this particular case, what does it say? Says V'lo shemo, um, uh, V'lo shemo mi Yisrael, says uh, that uh, you should not uh, blot out uh, the name of uh, the um, of the husband, and that's why the wife performs Ibn mechalitza. So there's a machlokis between Rabbi Yochanan and Lakish whether a chalitza is considered to be a good chalitza. Let's say a woman's pregnant and she performs chalitza and then it turns out that she miscarries. Do we say that chalitza was a good chalitza even though when it occurred it looked like she could potentially have a child from the husband is it a good chalitza? So uh, Rabbi Yochanan says that it's a good chalitza and uh, Reish Lakish says it's not a good chalitza. So Tosa says, uh, so we paskin like Reish Lakish. It's one of those few instances in which we paskin like Reish Lakish against Rabbi Yochanan. It's not a good chalitza. So Tosa says that even uh, Rabbi Yochanan would agree that the chalitza doesn't count for anything, meaning that uh, she wouldn't be prohibited to his relatives and so to the brother-in-law's relatives. It wouldn't be considered to be a valid chalitza of any sort if a viable child would be born. And he gives us an explanation. To gives us an explanation. Why is that? Because the Torah says, "Below mi Israel." Uh, that the whole idea of a chalitza is uh, that where, or, or a yibum, is that yibum or chalitza only takes place when the husband's uh, legacy would other- otherwise be blotted out. But here, a viable child was eventually born, so there was uh, the, so the legacy wasn't blotted out. He has a legacy, he has a child. So therefore, that, that's why this uh, chalitza doesn't count uh, as anything, because there's a viable child. So, uh, uh, Gishtetna says this it's independent svara an independent svara, not because uh, of the fact that the child is born to the husband during his lifetime per se, um, but Tostas gives this uh, separate uh, terrets. Uh, over there, uh, not just that the child the first terrace says the child who is uh, alive so it doesn't apply, there's the second terrorist says no, because, because we don't have so he says we see have an independent over here that as long as the legacy is not blotted out then there's no need for chalitza or yibum. so here, there is a child that's going to be born from the husband Zerah, so therefore his legacy has not been blotted out, so then we had this question um, about a, ch- a husband who died and there's still Zerah there's still Zerah, so does the uh, wife uh, do uh, chalitza, do you have to say, uh, do, do, you do chalitza or not? So you could say, do chalitza, you'll be on the safe side, riman of shach, that in case a child will be born later on, that she'll be, choose to be impregnated through the zera, or another Jewish woman will be impregnated through the zera. so it'll turn out no chalitza will have been necessary, but she'll do chalitza to be on the safe side. So Rabbi uh, yashiv. As in his chubos, he has all kinds of reasons why he doesn't think it's good to, for a man to donate zera to a sperm bank. He, say, he says because uh, it's zera, uh, and uh, it'll lead to situations where a person might end up marrying their half-brother, their half-sister. He gives all the different reasons why he thinks it's a bad idea. And then, uh, finally, he throws in uh, one, more, uh, one more critique or one more uh, consideration. He says, a bad idea, because maybe this man who's donating zero will get married, and he'll not, he's not going to have any other children, and he's going to die without uh, children, and the wife is going to do a chalitza, and the chalitza is going to be no good. Why is the chalitza going to be no good? Because it'll be a chalitza smuberis, that we pask in, uh, that a chalitza smuberis, we pass like Rishlokish, uh, that the chalitza is no good. And as long as there's zera out there in the world, the chalitza is no good. Not just that uh, there's a question whether you need the chalitza, or don't need the chalitza. He says the chalitza would be no good. It's going to be an invalid chalitza. As long as that zera is still out there, it's going to be an invalid chalitza. You say, why should it be an invalid chalitza? This woman's not pregnant, but we know that Gemara in Yevomos talks about a case where a woman's not pregnant, but she has a co-wife. When men used to marry more than one wife, and the co-wife goes to Medina Sayam, and the question is that maybe she's pregnant. That um, uh, and um, if she's pregnant, maybe she, she she went and she was pregnant. We don't know if she has a child. She doesn't have a child. So during the period of time uh, that, uh, and then the uh, and then she went with the the, the husband, and the husband dies. And now the question is, at what point in time should the remaining wife perform her chalitza? We say she shouldn't perform the chalitza during the period of time that the co-wife uh, might uh, still be pregnant. Uh, why is that? Because that would be a chalitza semubaris. What do you mean, a chalitza She's not pregnant, though the co-wife is pregnant. So we see, even if the co-wife is pregnant, that's considered to be a chalitza semubaris for this woman, despite the fact that she's not pregnant herself. So Rabbi uh, Yashiv uh, thought that would apply in this situation. So, others, uh, so there's a little kundurist that uh, somebody collected uh, afterwards of conversations that he had with Rav al Nowadays, this is uh, the, the big rage, that uh, you can't rely only on people on, sh- on, sh- on Sfarim that uh, Gedolim p- published during their lifetime. You have to read all the posthumously published uh, stuff about all the conversations I had in the car with the Rub, with this one, with that one. Uh, so yeah, this is all the supplemental literature. You got to read all the Halakha books uh, of all the conversations that people had. Sometimes they contradict each other. But uh, this has uh, become uh, very much uh, part of our New Age uh, Halakha tradition. So somebody published uh, a little contourist of conversations he had with Rabbi Yoshev. He says that one of the conversations he had with Rabbi Yoshev was about this Shubha. So he said he asked Rabbi Yoshev but this case is different from even a case of uh, regular chalitza's Milberis. Somebody is actually pregnant. Here the Zerah is just sitting around this Mekhusa It hasn't been implanted yet in anybody's womb. So therefore this shouldn't count as uh, being a Milberis that uh, a Halitsa would be invalid if it was Performed under these circumstances, so Avi Yashiv said. According to this this little kunteris, maybe you're right. I'm not relying upon this uh, s- svara to say for sure it's, like, it's a chalisa but I think you just have to be worried about it. So we asked Herschel Shechter what he thought because we had a case. The woman didn't want to destroy the Zera. She didn't want to destroy the Zera, assuming it's mutza to destroy the Zera. Separate discussion. Let's say it would be mutza to destroy the Zera. It hasn't uh, yet gone into the woman's uh, body or anything, and it's to enable her to go on with her life, to perform a Chalisa. So we just say at this point, uh, destroy it. She's not planning to have a child with her husband's Zera anymore. So, but emotionally, it's very difficult sometimes to destroy the Zera. It's a last prestige, it's something that uh, maybe would be important. To, to be in the world, just to, for future reference, for future consideration. She just couldn't bring herself to destroy the Zerah. So could she still perform a Chalitza so that she would be eligible to be married? So Shekhtar thought, yes. Shekhtar thought that you could rely upon uh, the Svara that it's M'chus Maisa that this isn't the same thing as Chalitza's Milberis. No so, Mamash, these are Halakha questions, Halakha maisa questions that, um, that come up at uh, Bismarck do we have time for? I don't know how long I've been speaking for. We have time for a little bit more. We're reaching the end. Another, how many minutes? Two or three minutes. Two or three minutes. Two or three minutes. Or three minutes. So there's uh, another uh, another uh, question that, that uh, comes that, uh, that that came up uh, recently uh, about Rea hageris. That we have a we have a, a concept in the Gemara called Rea haget. Uh, that if a, a man gives a get to a woman. And it wasn't uh, absolutely uh, necessary for the get to be given, uh, but just that there was a shmuah, that there was some sort of a sort of a woman that went around to this that this woman was married to a certain man, and as a result the get was given. So the Ramap Hoskins in a number of places that we apply the principle of Rayah get. The Shagasay writes there's only one type of reak get on a deraisa level. That's if a woman is really married to a man, and the man gives her a get, and he says, Raya Magureshis meni pe to uh, you're 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 divorced from me, but you're not allowed to marry anybody else. haha. Ha. So that doesn't really count as a real get, in the sense that she's not uh, permitted to marry anybody else. But nonetheless, it's considered to be a reach, I guess. So if her husband's a kohen, she can't stay with him anymore. Or if she eventually uh, gets a, uh, becomes an amana, she wouldn't be allowed to, to, to marry a kohen because it's considered to be a, a reach, get The apostle is because the Torah says, gusha, meishe, that even if she's only gusha meisha, she was only divorced from the husband and not from anybody else, she's still not allowed to marry a coin. So that's considered to be a reach again in a doresa level. So the Ramah discusses, a concept of a ra'acha get on the rabbanon level, and on the rabbanon level, so where it goes there uh, that uh, if a man gave a get to a woman and he wasn't really married to her halakhically, but just that uh, there was a Shash, the chumra, he gave her a get because there was a Shmua, that they got married or something like that. So uh, then uh, she wouldn't be allowed to marry. Uh, she wouldn't be allowed to marry a kohen uh, because that also would be considered to be a ra'acha get. It's similar. It's based to some degree on uh, a Gemara that has to do uh, with a woman who receives uh, a chalitza that wasn't really a necessary chalitza, a chalitza and then it turns out uh, that uh, the uh, husband, that, that, that a child was, was born uh, to the, um, uh, from a co-wife, a child was born from the case that I was discussing, so would she should be allowed to marry a cohen, so the Gemara says, well, we're worried that maybe people will hear that she had a chalitza but they won't hear that uh, she didn't need the chalitza, and if she goes and marries the Kohen, they'll think that a chalitza is allowed to marry a Kohen. So therefore, uh, the, the, so we, so we're worried about that it'll give the wrong impression. So here too, people will hear that the woman received the get, but they're not going to know that it wasn't really a necessary, so therefore she can't marry a Kohen. There's a whole deal nowadays, because I get calls all the time. I remember getting a call from the Besden in Tel Aviv once that a woman wanted to marry a Kohen and should have received the get from us. So they said, can you check the first marriage to see if it was an orthodox wedding? Maybe it was just a Reform wedding or something like that. So he said, yeah, it was a Reform wedding. I said, great, so we're going to allow her to marry a cohen. So I said, what about Re'achaget? So we're not worried about that. The reason they weren't worried about Re'achaget, first of all, the father aren't worried about Re'achaget. But even uh, beyond that, there's an argument uh, that uh, the, the Beishmuah points out that this concern that the Ramah had about Re'akh get, it seems to be based on a Chuba Sarashba, and there are contradictory Chuvah Sarashba. The Rashba is all over the place, or I should say, all over the place. There are different uh, Chubas to the Rashba that seem to go, whether we're worried about Re'akh we're not worried about Re'akh and under a abundant level. And everybody does uh, mental uh, somersaults to figure out how to reconcile the two Chuvahs to the Rashba. But one of the reconciliations is that maybe it's only when a bezden decided that a get was necessary, even if only the Chumrah, that we say that's considered rare a get, so she can't now marry a cohen, even if it really was the case that she wasn't really married. But if she did it on her own, that uh, on her own, she scheduled the appointment at the Besden and uh, did a get, but it wasn't posken by the Besden, so, and it turns out she didn't really need the get. So then uh, we don't uh, prohibit her from marrying a cohen. So some say that nowadays, we understand, everybody knows that getting are done for all kinds of people who don't really need a get, deep down, you we have a person only got married before and we have a Moshe and others would say there were no kosher them at the wedding that it's a good idea to a get uh, it's uh, because of uh, Henkin held that uh, every single union of a man and wife should, uh, receive, should be with a get even if it didn't have a halachically kosher them at the, the wedding ceremony but nonetheless, Meikaruddin, uh, uh, it's not uh, strictly necessary. So in such a case, since everybody knows that uh, Bati didn't do these uh, gitin all the time, without uh, making a psak that a get is absolutely necessary, just to be on the safe side, without doing investigations. We do a get always to be on the safe side. It's good to do a get to be on the safe side. Uh, so uh, then uh, that doesn't create a reactive get situation. I have a book by Ravaron Solveitchik, because there was a case like this that um, had to do with a certain couple in uh, Atlanta, I think, because he writes about a couple in Atlanta where there was a get and it was only a reform marriage, and there were no kasheredim at the wedding. And now the woman wanted to remarry a kohen, uh, so she wouldn't be psula, except for the fact that she received a get. So Rav Aaron said, that you don't have to worry about Reach again in this situation, and Rav Gedayah Schwartz also, uh, Zatzal, was also was makel in this type of situation. So that's a question mark. Some say that if you're an Ash, that the Ashkenazim, really should be machmir. there are different opinions about the Reach again situation. But do you apply the same type of uh, consideration, the type, same type of concern, to a situation of a Reach again? Let's say you have a woman who is presumptively Jewish, but she just doesn't have documentation that conclusively proves it uh, 100%. So we say, just to be on the safe side, you should go through a gear, the uh, and she goes through a gear in front of the Bezdin. Then it turns out that she really did have enough that we could have considered her to be Jewish even without the Geiris. But she went through this Geiris procedure. So do we say that since she went through the Geiris procedure, therefore she shouldn't be allowed to marry a Kohen because the Geiris is prohibited from marrying a Kohen. So here too, I think that uh, uh, Yehuda ben Yaakov and others have tshuvas. uh, I uh, have on this subject. I think Rami Shas has a tshuva on this subject which they say that we don't find uh, that uh, Chazal ever enacted a takana of re'ah ha-geiris. Rea okay, that's a discussion, that's an argument, but we don't find re'ah They give different suggestions why that might be because a get is a more of a public uh, type of a ceremony that you have lots of people who convene together, they do the get, and they find out about the get, so therefore there's more of a concern. People will know that the woman received the get, and they'll say, ah, we're allowing uh, a to marry a kohen. But when it comes to geiris, very often, especially if it's done the it's done very, very privately, so it's not uh, public uh, front-page news necessarily that uh, the woman underwent a gear, so there's more rumor to be made. So we had a case in the Besden a couple of years ago uh, where the woman had been converted by a Besden of Orthodox rabbis, and according to our research, uh, the, not, not the, the woman's mother, had been converted by a, a Besden of Orthodox rabbis before she married the woman's father. And uh, the, uh, the Bez did, and, and according to our research, uh, the woman's mother had been mechabelist so Mitzvah. She lived in a community. Not everybody was so familiar. It was a very modern community. She was a, the, Her rabbi was a traditional rabbi. In the Midwest circles, a traditional synagogue was a synagogue that didn't have a mechitza, but where the rabbi had orthodox micha, and they had orthodox nussuk, and everything like that, but they didn't necessarily have a mechitza. So this rabbi performed the conversion with two other rabbis who both were orthodox rabbis, who belonged to Orthodox uh, congregations? So everything here was very, very Orthodox. The woman herself, even though she was converted by this uh, rabbi from the traditional synagogue, she was shomer shabbos and she also was shomeris Tyrus HaMishbalka. Uh, she went to the mikvah all the time. She really in those days that wasn't uh, something that everybody did, but she really kept everything. So there really was a papa kabbalah semitzus on the part of this uh, of this woman. But because the rabbi who presided over it was the rabbi of a traditional congregation, and technically speaking, we're not one hundred percent. Uncomfortable because there wasn't mechitzah, so we had her undergo a, a gear the chumrah. Uh So I spoke it, but she was um, she was going out seriously with a man who was a kohen, was unambiguously a kohen. That's a separate discussion. Uh, how do you determine kohen b'smanasep? He was unambiguously a kohen. And um, I discussed at the time the issue with Rav Schwartz, and I discussed it with Rav Hershel and I discussed it with Rabbi Mordechai Willig, And uh, they all said that they didn't think you had to worry about reiach that it was appropriate just so that she would have good paperwork, you know, for herself and for future generations. That this daughter uh, undergo a the uh, But really, she was Jewish from birth because her mother had undergone a gear before she married her father, before she was conceived. So she's not wasn't considered to be a geiras, and therefore she really could marry a Cohen. you don't have to worry about the Re'ach uh, Hagerus uh, Shaila is still uh, appropriate uh, to do a de Chuma and not worry about Re'ach Hageris so she can marry a cousin so these are some of the very interesting Shailas uh, that we've dealt with uh, recently at the bezdin. a lot more that uh, we can discuss when we only have a, a limited amount of time yes Hashem I look forward to coming back to the Gush my son is uh, returning for shanabet, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to spend more time together okay